Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger. On this episode of Jill on Money, how can you inspire rather than convince? You can't convince anyone to do anything. I'm always thinking in terms of how can I inspire them to do something different. So if I can discover why they react like they do and discover that insecurity, now I have a choice. I can either validate that insecurity they have so they'll stop doing it or at least make an attempt to or not. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. We are presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. Today, we've got a great guest. His name is Robin Dreek. The book he wrote is called Sizing People Up. And I found this to be really cool because this dude is a veteran FBI agent. And he talks about how you can predict behavior in people. Why would you need to do that if you are not part of some counterterrorism unit? Because we encounter people every single day at work and in life. So I thought this was a really cool interview. Great guy. Here's our interview with Robin Dreek. You're listening to Jill on Money with Jill Schlesinger. So we start by saying something very easy. You ready? Mm -hmm. What is the best financial or career decision you've ever made? To, to never incur debt. Ah, it's a beauty. Buy cars in cash. And and makes your life sort of worry-free, Absolutely. Right? My house will be paid off in a couple of years, and that's it. I'm done. He's it- done! <laughs> All right, let's start, because I read the book, and you grew up in New York. Yep. And then what happened? You went to... I went to the Naval Academy. Um, it was my dream to go there for a long time. I had a great friend of the family, a United Airlines pilot, and uh, we, my family didn't have much money at all, and I was always enamored by his, and his I Love Me room was amazing. He flew A-4 Skyhawks during Vietnam off of the one of the aircraft carriers, and I was just, I wanted to do that. I mean, it's hard to get into Annapolis. Can you just, because a lot of people who mm-hmm. may not be part of military, they don't know that West Point and Annapolis, these are very difficult institutions to gain entry. How yeah. do you get in? Uh, for me, it was a lot of due diligence. And, and tenacity, um, you need extremely. My son's there right now as well, so I do it from both sides. Mm. It took it took me an extra year to get in. About a third of every class um, comes from some other source, whether they're prior military, they spent a year in college, um, they went to prep school, or they were foundation sponsored by the Naval Academy. I was a foundation sponsored guy, so they kind of put you in a holding tank. They want you, but they want to make sure your grades are good enough because this is a hardcore engineering school. Don't you have to get a politician to write a letter yep. for you? Hamilton Fish was my uh, was my congressman at the time. How about that? And uh, and he's the one that gave me my nomination. Okay, so you go through Annapolis, grueling, and then mm-hmm. what did you do coming out of the Academy. So when I first went there, I wanted to be uh, aerospace engineer, astronaut, pilot, um, failed out of aerospace engineering. <laughs> um, my eyes went to 2030, and back then they were non-correctable for pilots. So uh, I, I really got dismayed at, uh, at the Navy a bit. So I wanted to go in Marine Corps. And that was that was really, the, both the Naval Academy and Marine Corps were the first starting foundations on me understanding that I am not a natural born leader as a natural born self-centered narcissist. Really? And, and I, yeah, and I had a and I had to create manuals which my books are now not to be the moron I was born to be. <laughs> so wait a minute, did you find that out because like someone gave you feedback or did you get your ass kicked? How did that occur? A little bit of both, never really an ass kicking but a, uh, a a humbling moments, but really the I think the first one was when I was I was in a squadron in the Marine Corps where we had 14 second lieutenants and the military is fantastic at constantly raiding each other. And I was ranked last out of all 14 on my first reval. And wow. so I go to the, uh, the major and say to him, I said, all right, I get it, sir. I'm doing something wrong. The only gift I was given, I think, in life was the fact that I never blamed anything that happened on anyone else. I took, a, I took accountability. And I said, what am I doing wrong? And he said, you just need to be a better leader. And I said, okay. Thought I was. 
give me some more. And he goes, you need to make it about everyone else but yourself. And again, I was like, thought I was, how? And he goes, I don't know, just do it. So from that point on, it became my life's pursuit to figure that out. And so every time I encountered someone, whether it was a leader or someone in sales or someone in my family, I don't care who it was, that, that had that natural magnetism that could develop trust and develop these great relationships and people love being around them, it became my, my mission in life to figure out exactly what behaviors are they doing because I need to add that to myself to be successful. Were you ever engaged in combat? No, I was in during the uh, during the, the in-between years between the first Gulf War and the next Gulf War. So. And, and so coming out of that, then what happened? So my last duty station was Paris Island, South Carolina. I was a series commander down there uh, for people that know the military at all. I was one of the drafters of the Crucible. It was a final event at boot camp. And we had a, a guy from the Marine, uh, from the FBI come down, a recruiter, basically, and saying, hey, I think Marine Corps officers make great FBI agents, and they're about to send me to Okinawa with my wife uh, if I stayed in the Marine Corps. And I said, okay. I had two questions. I said, does all my military time count towards my retirement? And this is, I'm 28 years old, and these are the questions Good. I'm asking. smart. And the next question I asked was, what's the retirement rate? How many people actually stay on and make it to retirement? He said 95 to 98%. I said, all right, so I have nine years counts towards my retirement already, which is 9% of my average high three, and people generally stay. It must be good, and I get to continue to do something patriotic for my country. Okay, so now you're in the FBI. What's it like to make that career change? Because obviously you're now in your third major different ecosystem. Right. And what's it like for you? It depends on, on your age and experience. You know, when you first come in any organization, I believe, you come in uh, very optimistic, um, very naive about how things work, and you, and you really have a sense that the entire organization is about the mission. You know, my mission is I work count, nothing but counterintelligence the entire time. My mission was protect national security. When different offices focus on different things, here in Manhattan, my job was to recruit Russian spies primarily. And so that was, and I was so mission-oriented, but as I, my career progressed, I started seeing the other side where, well, you got some people that are more career-oriented than mission-oriented and st- starting to understand how to communicate differently in those realms and manage, and manage relationships both internally and externally became part of, part of a, a great learning challenge. How do you recruit Russian people for our <laughs> purposes here in the United States? Like, wh- what is it that you were actually trying to do, and how do you find them? Like, what happens? 99% of them are diplomats over here at the United Nations, so they're under diplomatic cover. Mm-hmm. I call this the toughest sales job in the world. Okay. Because my job is to sell a, a service, and my service I'm selling is American patriotism. So, first of all, sell that product to a you know foreign national spy. Um, so generally they don't want that product. The second challenge is, um, because of laws and treaties, it's, it's illegal for me to actually initiate contact with one of them as FBI. So I can't even approach my potential client. Third, they've done nothing illegal 99% of the time. So they have no compulsion to have to talk to me either. So those are the challenges. So how do you actually recruit them? It's very simple. Just like you do with anything in life. Um, relationships are based upon uh, similarities, you know, liking, which is tough if you're not allowed to communicate. But the other thing is you talk in terms of people's priorities because when you're trying to sell something and I'm selling patriotism, all I'm looking for is does this person have goals, objectives, and priorities that that I have resources to service? And so you don't actually recruit anyone. You actually see whose priorities align with yours in the sense of a dying wish of a grandmother or grandfather was that their children won't grow up under that oligarch regime mm-hmm. or in this part of the world or they want more opportunities. And so this is what the foundation of what makes human beings extremely predictable. Everyone can predict what all human beings are going to do all the time. 
We're always going to act in our own best interest in terms of our own safety, security, and prosperity as we see it. And so all you have to do is figure out what they think that is, offer resources, and then you're going to have a relationship. So now you've done these two other stints. You're in the FBI. You're trying to recruit Russians. 9-11 hits. How does that change your experience, just what you're doing and actually your, your, phys- your, your job? What, what happens for you? It immediately shifted uh, for a good number of months because, you know, my primary job was to, you know, try to recruit Russian spies, which is I call buying a lotto ticket uh, because it's that rare but that beneficial. And those are basically you're creating operations and and doing things to try to understand what the priorities of these different people are so you can see if I can get some window to offer them resources. That's, you know, just like in sales. And so when 9-11 happened, um, matter of fact, the character in the book, Leo, I had contacted him. And said, "All right, we're done working Russians now. We need we need Middle East." <laughs> I didn't have any source base for that, you know, for for intel coming in because that's not what I worked. And during that time frame, that's all you had, were allowed to work. And so it really took a a, re, a retooling of area of focus, but not methodology. And so again, I only had a couple, probably I think four or five years in at the time. And so we had an opportunity um, through Leo to really hit a, a pretty interesting individual that could really serve a back channel uh, to another country, uh, which was very beneficial. This is my first experience where it took managing management as well to get them to allow me to do something this sensitive um, at such a young juncture in my career. How do you understand the last two decades, you know, since 9-11 or so, and the approach that the FBI takes to counterintelligence? What, what has evolved? Probably technology more than anything, uh, technology in a way of uh, how we manage cases and um, share information. You know, when I came in, everything was pure paper. You know, you, when I hit New York City here in 1997, we literally had one computer for the entire squad of 12 people, and you had to share it when you wanted to type something up, and we still had typewriters. And this is back in 97 when the rest of the world already, already had a lot. So we went from, um, as I remember, I was at Quantico as an instructor when we actually went to our paperless system. And I did not believe it would work because we were so relying on putting paper in inboxes to get signed off to do cases. I thought there was no way in a million years I'm going to get one of my supervisors to actually log on the computer, see what's in his electronic inbox, and actually electronically sign something. But lo and behold, it actually worked very well. What about philosophically? Has there Was there a shift, um, obviously, after 9-11 that we're under attack, that counterintelligence becomes a different thing? But I'm wondering, you know, as you look at behavioral analysis. I'm going to be a dope, all right? So I watched that Mindhunter mm-hmm. on Netflix. Is that a true-ish kind of like as the, in terms of like when behavioral true-ish. analysis? So, so, so you have, so there's lots of behavioral groups inside the FBI. Mindhunter group, uh, which is based on the BAUs, like criminal minds, the behavioral analysis units, they're the criminal side. They're the profilers that, based on research and education, they're, they take a, a set of facts in a crime and they overlay that with research to kind of create an ideal profile of someone that would do that, kind of sensitize you and investigators to kind of make sure you're filtering out stuff that doesn't matter. My team originated in the early 90s, around 1990-92, which is the behavioral analysis program. So what we do is we generally most of the time know exactly who we're going to engage and we're creating strategies for creating relationships, whether it's a relationship to recruit someone, a relationship for a double agent operation or an interview 
or whatever it is you're trying to do, we generally always know who we're going to engage. And most of the time, we're dealing with normal psychology. We're dealing with people that fall within the normal parameters of human behavior because in the world of counterintelligence, you're dealing with very educated um, folks that are either in industry, they're presidents of clear defense contractors that you're helping protect against you know, foreign actors trying to get their proprietary information, or you're trying to you know, elicit information and hopefully gain cooperation of people that don't have our country's best interests at heart at the highest level of their governments as well. So, And so that has become a much bigger part of how the FBI proceeds, obviously, in the last 30 years, but even more so it's, in the last 20? It, it's really been about the same. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the tempo, the ops, the number of things we did, I mean, it's... From the day I started, the day I retired, the focus was always the same. I mean, it's it's always been intense. So how long did you stay in the FBI? When did you actually leave? 21 years. I did uh, 97. I retired in 2018. Okay. When you came out, what were you thinking about doing? I had started doing this kind of stuff probably back in 2010 or a little before. Um, so I had a good friend of mine, Joe Navarro, wrote lots of books on nonverbal behavior. He's a nonverbal expert. And he retired, and he was on my team with me, and he taught me nonverbal behavior. And he was always a big believer and big proponent of if you have at least one bit of information some other human being can benefit from, shame on you for not getting it out there. And so he was a big proponent for me publishing and writing, and so I wrote my first self-published book back then. And that went well, still does well, and that kind of spiraled things. I got asked to talk and teach. I got outside employment authority from the FBI to be allowed to do that. Mm which was a royal pain every year to renew it. But it's part of what you're supposed to do is if you have experiences that, are, that can help other people, share it. And my, my, my whole message is healthy, strong relationships. So now let's get into the book a little bit because you say that we all can employ some of the things that you have learned. You outlined six signs for behavior prediction. Can we go through a couple of these? Sure. Okay. I'm interested in sign number three about reliability. Sure. Because I find that I'm a, look, I'm a natural extrovert and I'm a salesperson also. So right. I build relationships. I rely on a certain gut instinct and a connection, but a lot of people feel like they don't have that. So how do you develop that? The gut instinct part can be really kind of trippy. Um, mm-hmm. It can really mess you up a little bit. I see gut instinct as kind of coming from two different areas as I've really thought deeply about this. The first one is liking someone. We basically like someone if they share the same morals, ethics, beliefs, very subjective, observable things. We like someone. But just because you like someone doesn't mean you can actually reasonably predict what they're going to do. Mm -hmm. A lot of times we transfer liking to trusting, and that can be dangerous because trusting to me is not – it's beyond just trust. It's about predictability so I can reasonably expect something from you. And the other part of of that intuition part is liking. The other half is what most human beings are actually pretty good at. And that's what I bet you're really good at too. If if you feel you get a gut feeling on someone, you probably rely more on this, which is we're always looking for basically congruence between the nonverbal someone's given off and the words they're saying. Because in other words, if you have a bad salesman that gives you the creepy feeling, it's not because of what they're saying. It's because the emotion doesn't back up what they're saying. In other words, they're saying, I'm here to offer you resources so you can have safety, security, and prosperity for you and your family by buying this car. But at the same time, what they're really saying internally is, I'm going to get as much money out of you as I possibly can. And as human beings, our ancient reptilian brain is picking up on there's a disconnect. It's the same reason why when you walk into a workplace in the morning, you can actually tell who's having a bad day before anyone even says anything. Are there tells that people should know about, like how you experience that? Or is it is it that feeling? Because funny that you should say that. We get a ton of people who call up and they'll say, 
you know, Joe Schmo, my investment advisor, has just said that I should buy a variable annuity, and I got a bad feeling from that. So maybe they're picking up on a nonverbal, but maybe the there's something else going on. And how do you know when to trust it? Like in a situation like that, if, if it seems a little odd, well, why do things seem odd? Well, because you've established a baseline of what normal is with this individual, and now there's a deviation from the baseline. And if they don't have transparency on why there's been a deviation, then there's attempted manipulation. And they could be deviating in a way that is nonverbal as well. Oh, yeah. Right? Give us some nonverbal cues that you like. So when I first started doing this, there's hundreds from the tip of your head to the tip of your toes. But I'm actually, since I'm now so much more focused on the words, I'm looking in the facial area. And what I'm looking for all the time when I'm engaging someone, I'm looking for comfort nonverbals. I'm looking for things that are saying I'm open to a relationship with you. I call them ventral displays, whether it's an eyebrow elevation, you know, so they're showing interest, um, whether it's definitely smiling. Smiling is a great indicator uh, that there's rapport starting to develop. Maybe a slight head tilt, so you're exposing the side of your neck where the carotid artery is. That's ancient man saying, I I trust you not to rip out my my throat. Um, (laughs) I'm looking for palms up ventral displays, you know, so when they're talking and speaking to you, they don't have a palm down, but their palms are facing upwards saying that they're open. So anything that's kind of up and open to you is a great way to see that someone is comfortable when engaging with you. This is Jill on Money. Hey gang, it's Jill, Jill Schlesinger, certified financial planner, CBS News business analyst and host of this podcast. So exciting. I'm here to tell you about our sponsor, Marcus by Goldman Sachs. Marcus is part of a storied company that's been a leader in financial services for generations. Marcus offers simple, secure access to FDIC-insured savings products, including a high-yield online savings account that earns four times the national average. Marcus also offers certificates of deposit, including no-penalty CDs. Want to find out how much interest your savings could earn with Marcus? Head to Marcus.com and try their high-yield savings calculator to compare rates from other banks. It takes just a few minutes. National average data provided by Informa and accuracy cannot be guaranteed. Marcus Deposits products are provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. And now, back to our interview with Robin Dreek. What would be a way to understand whether someone's actually just shy? Because there are times when people walk into mm-hmm. this studio, and I got to pull it back. Sure. I get it. Like, somebody's worried, somebody's anxious, and I always think that my job as the host or the hostess is to make you comfortable sure. and bring you out. What what tips for sort of a shy person in the workspace who maybe is perceived as somebody different than he or she sees himself? I would say two things. So one for the shy person, this is a methodology to actually put into practice step-by-step step of how to engage when you choose to engage and to make it about the other person, which a lot of times introverts tend to do really well anyway. But a lot of times they might have reticence to engage. So this is a step-by-step step process to engage because you're focused on someone else. And what's also good about it is it gets you know, freaks that like to overrun conversations like me to shut up and learn how to pay attention to someone else. So for the introverts, I would say that it's a methodology to get out more if, if you want to. Again, th- there's no judging in here whatsoever. But I think more so kind of where you started there was how do you deal with, if you're an extrovert, you know, dealing with someone that is a little more introverted and, they're, and you see them pulling back or you see them a little reticent. Best thing ever is double the space. If, if you start engaging someone 
and you are too close to them from their perspective, perspective um, and you see them lean back a little bit away from you, do the same and double it. So you're talking about physical space, but also emotional space? Yeah. How do you do that for yourself? I'll give you my tips, but you tell me what you do. I watch the tempo and accommodate the tempo. Yeah. That's a salesperson right there. I mean, right. I think that when I, I first made the leap into sales, which I had, you know, I was a trader on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. So, by the way, invading someone's space is like number one job. Like, right. Because it's an intimidation thing Absolutely. also. Yep. I was so struck by moving into sales about how physical space was really important and I paid attention to that but I don't think I really understood the emotional space until I did it for you know five six seven years a quick question on that were you working for yourself there yes there why you didn't ha- need relationships so you didn't have to pay attention to anyone else you're d- you're establishing your own dominance in that environment because that was your job but even when I worked and when I my first point when I was working on the floor for a company the boss would say to me, like, shove that emmer effer out oh, of yeah, the way. Oh, because you didn't rely on anyone else around you. Yeah. You know, so there was no need for, you know, relationships around you. It was about establishing physical uh, dominance. But what's interesting is then you do rely on relationships, so you have to first gain their respect, then build the relationship. <laughs> so it's really intense. Interesting tribe. Yeah, well, I mean, which is why, by the way, it's extinct right now. Right. So that's a good thing. When I'm thinking about emotional space, I think that people will fill gaps. I did this, that I would fill the gap with words. And I imagine in your situation as an FBI agent, you really have to learn not to do that. Talk about some of the emotional space that's required in real life, but also in your job. So emotional space is about understanding what the other person is looking for and requires. And I'm looking for cues on that as well, non-verbally first. So in other words, if you start filling that space, you know, I'm looking for comfort to begin with. And if I don't see comfort, that means I might see stress. And so if my, my actions, my words, my tempo is inducing stress, here's some things I might see. And this is going, it's going to cause me to first pull back. And that's, I'm going to see maybe some eyebrow compression, like a furring of the eyebrow, mm-hmm. some lip compression, expressing tension. Like pursing of the pursing lips. Pursing the lips. Basically, I'm, and I'm going to start seeing people pull away mm-hmm. or start blocking with their bodies, blading away. All these things I'm looking for people that are actually compressing into themselves because I'm causing it. And so if I start seeing that I'm causing inducing stress, the first thing I do is I engage it. And acknowledge, say, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I'm doing too much talking or I, I need to be quiet. I, I apologize. My fault. So I'll be very accommodating and vocalize it because I, I'm always big on transparency. Because transparency is probably one of the most key things you need if you're going to have a relationship. I also think that like in a work environment that sometimes we are uncomfortable with silence. Obviously, I mean, I'm in spoken word, right? Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> there is this sense that it's okay to leave the space. You know, for an extrovert, it sounds like a million years when you introduce silence, but it is the most beautiful thing ever because, one, what helps you do it for to begin with is start thinking in terms of how is the next thing I'm about to say going to be about them or is it going to be about me? If it's about me, I need to shut up. So I slow down and cause those spaces to happen when I'm actually thinking about how do I make this entire conversation about them and not me? So that thoughtful process does slow me down when I'm really engaged which gives us that space and that silence. And it's, I've never had an instance where that silence did not produce magic. So if you're in the workplace and we buy the book, mm-hmm. right, and we use this manual for behavior prediction and you find out that your boss is basically full of crap, what do you think the employee, the person listening to this right now, like, my boss is so full of crap, 
What's the action item for that person? Choice. To me, it always comes down to choice. You know, one of the things I love about what I do is it gives clarity and understanding about people. Mm-hmm. And the whole point of that is so that we can not feel helpless when dealing with someone that we don't understand or frustrate us or make us angry. Because what happens is as soon as you start understanding context of that individual from, you know, their life, from their perspective, from the things they experience, and you start understanding why they might have inappropriate behavior, your acceptance and understanding starts skyrocketing. Hmm. And so your tolerance of them starts going up. And also, since you do have this now more deep understanding of why they are like that, and 99% of the time it's because they're insecure about something. All human beings have insecurities. And sometimes we're very good at managing them. Sometimes we're not. Sometimes people keep them hidden. Sometimes they're up front. But anytime we feel we're being threatened in any way of our, of our position inside of our tribe, you know, which our ancient brains tell us, we need to be part of meaningful groups and organizations for survival. And anytime we feel like we're not or it's being threatened, we get insecure. And insecurities, they bypass the thoughtful cognitive brain and go back to that ancient reptilian brain again. And we battle for either resources, battle for acceptance, And so just understanding why someone's insecure and why they're having this full of crap attitude or whatever it is helps you then make a choice. Whether you want to stay or go? Stay or go or deal with it or not deal with it because you can't convince anyone to do anything. I'm always thinking in terms of how can I inspire them to do something different. So if I can discover why they react like they do and discover that insecurity, now I have a choice. I can either validate that insecurity they have so they'll stop doing it or at least make an attempt to or not. A lot of times these people that have these inappropriate behaviors in the workplace, they're feeding off the energy that they're getting back from the chaos they're causing. And so a lot of times you might not be able to affect directly that person that is causing the chaos. But if you start mitigating the people around them to not be affected by it, by sharing with them, help them understand what the insecurity is, what's going on, they'll stop reacting. And here's a guarantee. You stop reacting and feeding that insecurity, it stops. So if you're in an environment where there's a lot of chaos, a lot of people listen to this program. They work at startups. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of entrepreneurial chaos monkeys out there. What's the coping mechanism? For me, it's just one, you already said, it's the understanding so that that's my coping mechanism. And the other thing you can do, if again, it's a choice if you want to be proactive in this. And it might might feel horrible to do it, but figure out what their priorities are and start becoming a resource for it. As much as you might disagree with it, as much as you don't want to do it because you don't like them, put the liking aside and say, if I need to create an environment where they're not trying to come at me, who don't people go after? People don't go after people that are actually being resources for their success. And you know that bullies always bully the people that they know they can bully. Mm-hmm. So sometimes when you stand up, it's interesting. I had that. I had an experience like that in my career mm-hmm. where I said to somebody uh, who had power over me in some respects, uh, I said, you're either completely off the rails and not thinking this through in a smart way or you're lying. And either way, I think we've got a problem. And from that point on, that person stopped bullying me. It's interesting. I, um, I've, I've slid away from that kind of confrontation. and It's not good for you. It's not. Um, and it's not he- healthy for anyone around either. And a way I, I tend to do that now is someone is keep getting over emotional. Again, my, my sixth sign is emotional stability. And if you keep going off the rails, and even if you are my boss, a, a very simple question I love to ask people is, again, I never tell people anything. I never tell them what I think. I seek their thoughts and opinions because mm-hmm. that's you demonstrate that affiliation, demonstrate value. And so I love talking in terms of goals and priorities. All I say to people like that is, all right, help me understand. Is your goal to achieve this and do this on this project or get this done? Just so we can just be on the same sheet. It is? Okay, help me understand. How is what you're doing and talking to me now helping or not helping you achieve that? 
That's great. Just seek a thought and opinion in terms of what's important to them. Generally, when you ask thoughts and opinions, it gets people to slow down and start cognating again instead of reacting to stimulus around them. You know, so when people are off the rails, they're not thinking. They're reacting to stimulus around them that's flaring up insecurities. If you can get them thinking again by instead of telling them what they're doing wrong, judging them in any way, which is actually going to flare it up again even worse, start asking what I call discovery questions. You know, we had um, Frank Abagnale in here oh, wow, uh, yeah. from Catch Me If You Can, yeah. and, and he was talking about how scam artists are really good actually at winning your confidence, yes. right? And they are relational. Yep. Seems strange to say because I think that there's like a distance from a lot of the online scammers. But in a person, um, you know, in a Madoff kind of situation, do you think that the scam artist is successful because he or she can really transcend some of the behavioral analysis that you could do? Yes-ish. Um, you know, as you start edging up towards um, psychopathy, and empathy starts falling off, and so there's no longer going to be nonverbal cues that you're going to pick up because their baseline is actually completely congruent with the things they're saying a lot of times. Um, the only real, I think, tool you have in situations like that is going for that transparency. If you have questions in anything that just don't make sense or just don't add up and you're seeking transparency and you don't get it or don't really answer the question or they kind of sidetrack it left or right, that's someone who doesn't have transparency in that area, and so I would. That's when I I disengage. All right, last part of this, love relationships. Mm-hmm. People are with their mates forever, and then someone cheats, and they say came out of nowhere. Trust blown. Trust blown. How do you think both people in the couple who want to stay together, let's say, mm-hmm. how they get beyond that? So this is a very tough process, and. Here's what it takes to get trust back, if you can. So the person that blew the trust has to now open up any aspect of their life that the other person that was wronged felt was not transparent and that they're insecure about. They have to open up to full transparency, full access, as often and as much as that person wants and as deep and as frequently as they want to have it. Forever? Or is there some time limitation? until that other person that was wronged feels it's enough. Mm -hmm. And that might not ever come. Mm -hmm. That's why I always say don't blow trust because to get it back is very, very rough and and challenging. How about lying in the workplace? I mean, sometimes it's a shading of the truth, right? So It generally is because people don't like to lie, believe it or not. Human beings avoid it. Okay, so when your boss says to you, you're totally in line for that promotion and you don't get it, uh, maybe the boss is just doesn't want to be disliked. I don't want to give you the bad news. Mm-hmm. They're not lying to you, but you feel uh, misled. Had it happen. So how do you get through that? Well, they've now established a pattern, yeah. you know, and so, you know, if it happened once or twice, most likely it'll happen three or four times. Mm-hmm. So you start learning. First of all, you start learning to manage your own expectations. And then in times of calm, when you can actually then ask for feedback, Like, all right, so I didn't get this promotion. Help me understand. What could I do differently, if anything, to be more competitive next time? And if they give you all those things to do and they share their priorities and now you answer all those priorities. Like when I ran my behavioral team and sequestration hit the government, um, they told me we don't have money to fund the team. We're going to discontinue the team. We're going to transfer you back from Quantico up to headquarters in D.C. And you get to ride the train every day again. I'm like, uh Tell me what your priorities are, and I'll solve them. They said, we don't have any money. I said, I can do all my consultations with my team virtually. 
Okay, they said, well, we need more people up here because all our TDYs that are managing all our cases are are going back to their main offices. I said, I've done the job before; I can do it remotely from here. Keep going. And they had nothing else, but they still did it. You know why? Why? They weren't transparent in all the priorities. They were actually trying to get rid of my boss. Uh, and what if you knew that? Let's say that it was like, hey, look, we can't say it. There is something bigger going on here. And so you just got to sit tight because we need you to just hang with us for six months because we have some other things that are going on. That would be beautiful if they said that. Could they? I guess they could. Yeah, but in, in most organizations, people don't want to sh- share, you know, what cards they're holding unless you already have a very strong prearranged trust relationship with them. Right. So in my situation, which I think is pretty common in the workplace where, you know, you're, you're solving all the problems or the challenges to try to keep doing the job you want to do, and yet they're still getting rid of it which makes no sense, which means there's information you don't have that you no longer have control over. And so now you just make choices. You can be willing to take the the road they're laying out for you. You can take an initiative to find another road to go to. I, I took the other initiative because I was like, all right, you people are kind of crazy to me. If I'm being rational and solving your priorities and challenges and you're still being unrational, that means there's something else at play. And if you're not being transparent, that's unhealthy. I'm going to make another choice. Okay. Robin Dreek, we started the interview and I asked you your best financial or career decision. You said your best is never get into debt. What was your worst? Being so, so self-centered at the beginning of my career to be thinking and without even realizing it, the, the worst always is... I thought this way to success was to make myself look good. And what I really realized, it was more about how you make other people look good. You're listening to Jill on Money. Okay, it's time for the Marcus Minute. We're presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. In the hot seat today is Robin Dreek. He is the author of Sizing People Up. Okay, you ready to play? I am ready to play. Robin, what's one word to describe your relationship with money? Cognitive. What's always worth spending on? Relationships. What's the dumbest thing you've spent money on? Uh, home gym. How much do you spend on a haircut? Uh, $12 and I give a tip up to 20 It's your last day on earth. You've got 100 bucks in your pocket. What's your last meal? Pizza and beer. Well done. Robin Dreek, the book is called Sizing People Up. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks so much to our guest, Robin Drake. We really appreciate him coming in. He is a veteran FBI agent, after all. He's credible, trusting, rational, all that stuff. So go check out his book. It's called Sizing People Up. We drop new episodes of the show every Tuesday and Thursday. Sometimes we throw in a bonus on Friday as well. Never know. If you want to make sure not to miss anything, just subscribe to us. You can do that anywhere you've gotten this podcast. And don't forget, if you got a moment, Could you please leave us a rating or a review? Mark says it's important. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. And yes, Mark is our executive producer and he is the best ever. We are distributed by Cadence 13 and our show is presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. See you next week.